Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to this episode of Blue Murder Talks. My name's Lauren and I'm here with... It's Carrie. Can you talk on Blue Murder Talks? No, I couldn't. I couldn't even say murder. I was going to say Scottish. Scottish. Every time. Yeah. Hello, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Just got back a holiday. Mm. I've got the holiday blues. How about mm. you? I'm all right. I think I'm going to melt. We're in the middle of a heat wave, oh, aren't we? So warm. I can't complain. I've been in the pool every day. That's all right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like an ice pole because I've got no sun in the garden because of my neighbour's big trees. Uh, but I'm in it. <laughs> we went to watch that Abba Voyage yesterday <gasps> in East London and it was ridiculously hot. Oh. Uh, even in the venue with the aircon, it was it couldn't cope because it was so hot. And wow. It was a good show, but... it was really hot. Like, oh, I want to do this sing ever to you now. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No, that's wrong. What did I just do? Money, money, money. KLF. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here we are. Here. Blue Murder Talks. Obviously, we have a guest. We sure do. Yeah. We've been trying to get this man on our podcast for over a year now, so we're very excited and very pleased to introduce Mr. Colin Sutton. Hello, hello. How hello. are you? Hello, I'm good, thank you. I'm very good, just as hot as you are, but it's not too bad. That's, I, I don't normally do this sort of thing in the kitchen. I don't know how it sounds, but my little office is just like a sauna, so I thought I'd come out here, it's a bit cooler. Yeah, yeah, yeah it sounds fine. It sounds perfect. Yeah. Good. It's good. Yeah, so thank you for coming on. We really appreciate you taking time because you're a very busy man. I expect you're busier now than when you used to be a policeman, aren't you? Yeah, sometimes I feel I am, but mm. I still get enough time to. No, I get more time to myself than I used to get. Oh, you know. that's good. That is good. I can work shorter hours. I might work <laughs> as many days, but shorter hours. <laughs> Anyone who follows your socials knows you're like the golf course. So I see you get plenty of, well, make plenty of time for your golf. <laughs> yeah, it's gone very well, my golf this year. I've, I'm actually, my handicap's now lower than it's ever been in my life. Wow. Lower than when I was 27. So yeah, I've really, yeah. <laughs> I've made some good progress. This nice. Year. Excellent. Very good. Yeah. I'm yeah. sad to tell you, Colin, I am crap at golfing. I'm very cack handed. We went to do crazy golf before, didn't we? And I was just hitting oh, yeah. the ball just anyway, just to try and. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I'm a bit like that sometimes. It's just how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> just because you can't putt, don't mean you can't golf. It's yeah. different. You, yeah. might, you might be no. brilliant with a driver. I am, actually, in my mind. If I just believe it, 
I can do it. I reckon you've got a decent swing. <laughs> <laughs> so, Colin, you've kindly decided, uh, agreed to come on our podcast to talk about Good. yourself, and we're going to ask you a few questions about your career, and we've got a few just nosy questions because, you know, I've just, right. I just finished your um, Levi Belfield book at the weekend, yes. and there was a couple of bits in there, and I was thinking, oh, I need to talk to you about that this, that and the other. So, um, yeah, cool. Okay. Um, go ahead. We ready? Yeah, ready, steady, go. <laughs> so how and when did you get into policing and being a detective, Colin? Uh, I got into policing, really, my dad was in the police, my great-grandfather was in the police. It was just something I wanted to do. Uh, I never wanted to be a detective. I never had any idea, any, any dream to be a detective at all. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, just... Uh, I just wanted to be the best sort of street policeman that I could be, really. Um, and I got into being a detective completely by accident, really, because I, I, it's in the book, if you've, you just read it recently, you'll probably remember this, but in, I was on the way home from work and came across a burning building and tried to go in and two people got killed in there by a, an arson in, in Enfield back in 1983. And uh, so I'm only sort of 21, 22, 22 at the time. Um, and I, yeah, I ended up having to go to the murder squad and give a statement and the old SIO sort of said, do you want to hang around for a few days and, uh, work with us? Um, you know, it was sort of, you, you could earn a few bob out of it. There was no sort of, um, debrief in terms of my psychological needs or anything like <laughs> that, like we do these days, you know, it was, I'd just sort of given up on getting any further inside this burning building so I thought I was going to die myself so I came out and felt a bit bad about it and his answer was you know you can you can earn a few bob in overtime come work with us for a bit um but yeah and I, I worked there not for very long but it was just I kind of sat in these office meetings where he is at the center of it and people are telling him what they've done and he's thinking okay what does that mean what do we do next and where do we go and I thought that looks like a really, really good job. I'd really like to do that one day. Um, but I'd kind of taken a different career path, really, for various reasons and didn't think it would ever be possible. And uh, fortunately, about, I don't know, about nine years after that, I got the chance to go across to be a detective and uh, grabbed it with both hands and then never really left for the rest of my service. Was that when you was working in the Met? Yeah, it was, yeah. I was, I was, I was working at Tottenham. Um, and living in Enfield when when that murder uh, happened, um, and I worked around sort of North London in uniform, Tottenham, um, Holloway, Leighton, Paddington Green as well when I was uniform sergeant, um, and then I went from Holloway to to Islington to to be the DI and uh, or ADI there, and uh, yeah, that was um, apart from about six weeks when I was working out of the Met when when I kind of filled in um, as a uniform chief inspector in, in Bradford. I uh, I didn't really put a uniform on again after that. Mm. Just a quick question. Did your dad used mm. to work in the Met as well? I know you said your dad was a policeman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he did. Yeah, my, yeah, all, I say my, my great-grandfather, my dad and I all started at Tottenham Police Station as well. Wow. wow. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Um, and, and then my son, my son's a serving officer in the Met at the moment, but he lives in... In Surrey, so he works in South West London. Yeah, oh, that's wow. four generations. That's awesome, isn't it? Yeah, four out of five. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah that's well, I've got good. three grandsons now, so hopefully, you know, maybe one of those will take up the mantle as well. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Seems to be a tradition mm. in the Suttons, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
There's one thing about you, Colin. I've seen, I think, about three or four of your talks now, and every time I just get entranced with how you tell stories. You're really a good storyteller. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess so. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm glad because lots of things have happened to me in the last sort of ten years that probably wouldn't have happened if I wasn't a good storyteller. It's <laughs> um, kind of what I do. But yeah, it's. Um, I don't know. I just like the sound of my own voice. I think probably going. <laughs> I don't, I don't it's I was I, I did an interview yeah, I did an interview for a podcast over the weekend actually for somebody in America not not about me but about a, a, a story a, a crime story and she said that she said you know yeah, I wish wish all my interviewees were talked as as naturally as you do and I, I don't know it's just just you know I've not got many talents so if that's one of them I'm grateful for it Hey, rub off on me a bit, please. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about this yesterday, weren't we? Yeah. We were saying um. You know, you're a chatty guy. Obviously, we've met you a few times. You're nice and engaging and all that. And when I've read some of your books, you say, like, when you get, say, you arrest a man for one of the crimes or something like that, you try to build rapport. And mm. I'm guessing, is that something that you get trained in, building rapport? Uh, not, not something that I got trained in. I think that, you know, well, I know nowadays, you know, people who do interviews, who interview criminals now are certainly serious criminals you know murderers and so forth all have to be trained in, in interviewing techniques and I never did that course so I don't actually know what's involved with it <laughs> you've um, never done the course <laughs> uh, but you know what we yeah for example with 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 Belfield you know the people that invest yeah, that uh, interviewed him were detective constables because they'd done the course and I watched every second of every hour that we interviewed him and it was a lot and I watched it sort of live and listened to it um and the only means of communication we had in those days between us and the interviewers was through a text message so you'd sit there and think of something and you'd be tapping out a text and then you'd see the interviewer sort of pick up from his pocket and have a look and um yeah so you know it's it's a great thing isn't it on on kind of drama and stuff like that you see on television it's always you, you see the DI or the DCO sort of basically doing it all on his or her own and, and they do the interview and they do everything and that, that's that's not really how it happens because people are training now but I mean I've said lots of times I think that, that being a detective being a police officer is about understanding people mm-hmm. um, and you know because a lot of the time when you're trying to investigate these things you're kind of thinking okay if that's what happened what what would he have done what would he have done next why would he have done that next and, and trying to sort of second guess it and then that becomes your theory and you try and prove it or disprove it. So it's understanding how people work. And I go, I suppose if you're kind of leading a team of detectives like I did, then it's also understanding how the detectives work and understanding them as people and what gets the best out of them because, yeah, that's vitally important because it isn't, you know, in, in, in Inspector Nacker of the Yard that solves everything on his or her own. It's, it's a very much a team effort and part of, a lot of leading that team is about making sure that each individual is able to do his or her best, whatever they're, they're meant to be doing, and making sure you know that that that's work and they're motivated and all the other things. So, yeah, I guess understanding what people are like and how people work is quite a big thing of it, really. Yeah, I think it is important. Yeah. We had another um, policeman on, didn't we, Leon? Yeah. He works for Transport London Transport Police, and he says yeah. a lot of the time his job is somewhere in between a policeman and a social worker. There's, yeah. there seem, he feels there's a bit of a gap between yeah. those two services and they're usually, the yeah. police are used, used to plug that gap. <laughs> so you are expected yeah, to... That's absolutely right. I mean, we've got, um, 
far fewer police officers in London and indeed across the country than we had, say, 15 years ago. And not only are there fewer of them, but they've got more to do. And, and a lot of that more to do is plugging the gaps where other agencies, which have had their own cuts and have got smaller staff, um, aren't, aren't able to, to to cope with what, they, they, what they're called upon to do. And, and because the police are there 24-7 and they're always available, they, they're the sort of service of last resort in many cases. And so mm. you can't get hold of anyone at social services or child services or mental health services. Oh, let's ring the police then. Yeah. And as part of the kind of culture has always been, well, you know, we, we, we never say no. We'll, we'll do whatever people ask us to do. And they ask us for help. We don't, we don't turn them away. That's changing. You know, that's changing. And, and it's, uh, I think some of the stuff that's going on about certainly dealing with mental health. I mean, you know, back when I was a uniform officer sort of 30 years ago, as a uniform inspector, I had the power to deem, as they call it, to, to, to section somebody to go to hospital because they were perhaps suffering from mental illness in, in the public place or whatever. Now, what would happen there was we would then take bring them to the police station where they'd be looked after and eventually we'd get a doctor in or, or a social worker or both and they'd arrange for that. And that was that. Now, and probably quite rightly, it was decided the police station is not the best place for somebody suffering a mental health crisis, which, which I completely understand and agree with. So therefore, you have to go to take them to hospital which will be fine if you change hospital and leave them there. But the hospitals won't let the police leave them until they find a doctor to come and do an assessment. And that sometimes takes four or five hours. And that's why if you go to virtually any A&E, you'll always see police vehicles there and police officers there because they're sitting there with, with patients. And that's just tying up too many resources. And that's what this right person, right call thing that you've probably heard about is, is yeah. about. And it's about trying to take that demand away from police so they can go back to policing, and it is, it's, it's daft. If you, you know, God forbid your house gets broken into, or your car gets broken into, and you call for help, and they say there's no one here, if the reason for no one being there to deal with it is because they're all sitting at the hospital, then something's got to change, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 100%. I think, I think that's the sort of thing that Leon was, was touching on, to be honest. Yeah, yeah that that yeah. gap in between those two services. Just, yeah. just to touch on what you said earlier about your team, Colin, and getting the best out of mm. them. Funnily enough, that leads on to one of my questions, because... When I read your books and I see that the size teams that you managed when you was on the murder squad, I just, I mean, we're women, we're used to multitasking, <laughs> but, but I don't know how you managed to do it. I was wondering if you could give us a bit of insight into how you managed to control and motivate such a massive team. Um, yeah, I don't know, really. I, I think, yeah, murder squads all over the country, but murder squads in the Met particularly are have got motivated officers you know they're there because they want to be there nobody nobody's on a murder squad by default it's because they've they've got a good track record of being good detectives and good reliable officers and they've volunteered to go and do that more difficult job so they're kind of motivated in that sense uh so really i think you use that and what you do is you you understand what they want to be doing and what they like doing and make sure that those people, you know, get to do the things they want and they're happy in in doing their work. And, you know, underpinning all that is the fact you've got to be scrupulously fair to them. Um, not, you know, you can, you can rule, you can make people work for you out of fear, but they will work for you much better if they want to be doing it. Is you know, so I was, I'm not a, 
I'm not a table thumper or a, a yeller, you know, one or two occasions a year when I did sort of, you know, blow my top, then they knew that I meant it. You know, um, whereas if I were doing it three times a day, then nobody would take any notice, would they? Nah, <laughs> so, here it goes again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. You know, we've all worked for people like that, haven't we? You know. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's. Uh, it's about round pegs and round holes as well. I mean, there, there was there was an officer once a long time ago that worked for me who, virtually every single time, and I won't even uh, identify the gender of the officer, but every time this officer had a contact with a member of the public. I seem to get a phone call or an email or a letter to say there was a complaint, you know? And so we sat down and I said, look, you know, if you really want to be here, there are things you're really good at. You're really good at dealing with the exhibits and, and you know, the sort of, that's a very meticulous, detailed recording job that has to be done and it's vital to the prosecution. You're also very good at, at doing the CCTV and looking through that and finding things we want on that. Now, if you're happy to stay here and want to be on this team, and do those things, and that's fine, you can stay. But I'm not going to put you in situations where you're rubbing people up the wrong way because you haven't, for some reason, got that sort of ability. And, and you know, we can work on that, and we can see how what courses there might be available and what training there might be to try and make you better at, at dealing with the public. But for the moment, you know, we don't have the time here. We're too busy for me to spend half the day speaking to people you've rubbed up the wrong way. So let's try and avoid that, shall we? You know, and... Yeah, they just came back and said, yeah, okay, fair enough, I'll, I'll do that. That's yeah. fine, I don't want to go. You know? nice. um, and, and improved and got promoted and became a, became a you know, more grounded officer. So it's, yeah, they, they, when you've got a team of that sort of size, you know, you, you get to know them quite quickly. And we were together a long time as well. There were, you know, there were people on that Levi Belfield squad that put their promotions on. We even had a wedding postponed, you know, just because people didn't want to be there and didn't want to be missing out on on what was going on because I think they they realised, we all realised from the very beginning that we were actually embarking on something which, if we were successful, was going to be quite a momentous thing and, and people wanted to be part of it, you know. Yeah, that's true. I think you mentioned in the book getting a, a, a case that involves a serial killer is really unusual and no one would yeah. no policeman would ever want to pass that up like no, the opportunity no, to catch it, a serial killer yeah i mean you, you do you get you know everyone gets trained to be a senior investigating officer then some of them get trained to do serial cases but not all of them and then only some of those who are trained actually get to do one you know and, and it is it's, it's unusual and, and that's why i had this sort of the self-doubts at the beginning as well, thinking, you know, am I really up for this? And, and the old Joe Brunch, he said, well, someone's got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, not really that's not really the answer I wanted. But... Good girl. <clears throat> but, yeah, um, you know, you, as you do, because it is... And it's something else I've, I've, I've mentioned lots of times, but it's true, and I can't say it enough times, that, that we all read books and we all watch things on TV where where the, you know, the, the police are under pressure, when's he going to strike again? And when you're actually living that for real and have that pressure for real at the back of your mind with everything you're doing, it's a tough place, you know, it was a tough place to be. And I, I, I don't think you'd be human if you didn't take a step back and think, you know, am, am I the right person to do this? Am I, am I up to this? Um, Is that something you, f you feel then, Colin, the pressure of what if he strikes again while I'm on this case? Yeah, I mean, we had we had that pressure all the time. Um, it's the contrast really with Belfield and with 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 Delroy Grant, the Night Stalker, because he was just so prolific. 
we kind of knew that he would be striking again. And so yeah. the strategy to try and catch him was was dependent upon him striking again almost, you know. Um, but with Belfield, you know, I, I wanted to I wanted to go out and and arrest him as soon as we identified him. And it was only a very senior officer who said, no, no, we will we'll put surveillance behind him for a few days and see if he leads us to the van and we might get some forensic evidence and all that sort of thing. So which I understood as the call, but I just thought, you know, even if you've got 15 officers following somebody covertly all the time, I'm not convinced they would have been able to get in and stop him before he killed someone else because he did it so quickly, and that yeah. was my worry. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, last thing you want is for him to do it again, yeah. but you don't want him to do it again with 11 police officers watching on, do you? Oh, you God. Yeah. So, God. The pressure must have been unbelievable. Mm. Mm. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Me, me and Carol were saying this earlier. We both like your, um, the world, the Delroyd, Delroy Grant case, like the unfolding of it. What was it? Five yeah. months? Like you got on there? It was going on for years. Seventeen years. years I seventeen think, years. Well, yeah, it was seventeen years, and I went and had a look. In, I think at the end of May or something, and then I took it over in October, and we got to in the middle of November. Mm. Yeah, I mean, but you know, it was yeah. We I changed stuff, and we did something different, and it mm. worked. But it didn't have to work, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It was lucky that it did, but it did, and and. Unless you try, you don't succeed, do you? I suppose, but you know, it's a. Uh, so it was difficult because it was. You kind of get to a stage where. You've taken a certain route and a certain method, and you kind of go so far down that road that you can't turn around and come back. 
And the only way you can turn around and come back is if some sort of somebody like me, like a bull in a china shop, who's got no history with it and no, you know, no skin in the game, however you want to put it, can come in and say, well, let's not do that. Let's do this. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm not rubbishing loads of stuff that I've been doing for years by saying that. I'm just saying, well, this is how I see it. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, fortunately, the, those above me backed me up to do that. And, and probably more crucially, the, the team backed me up as well to yeah. do it. And, and we got lucky. Yeah, that, well, they had trust in you, didn't they? Because obviously, like reading both your books, you saw, uh, well, from my point of view, you saw the key thing was identifying the vehicle that the perpetrator was driving because you applied that to the Delroy case as well. You was like, DNA, we could be here for another 100 years. We're not going to catch him with DNA. Yeah. Um. So you knew you had to look at something more tangible, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, that was that. It was, it was literally, you know, I, I, I wish I still had it. I don't. But the, the notebook, the big red notebook that I had for that case, when I went to the first meeting and they were talking about it, I wrote in the margin, what if we didn't have DNA? Because everything they were talking about was about the DNA. And it, it's just, you know, that's what I was there for, was to try and look at it from a new angle, I suppose. So I thought, okay, well, everything they're talking about is based on the fact they've got DNA. So what if they didn't have that? How would they be looking at it then? And that was that was really, yeah, what, what, what made me go down that, that road but but then interestingly of course just recently i've met um julie mckay who wrote the Britannica killer you know she was the true crime book of the year last year she was at crime club mm-hmm. and she had a situation with an old case where she's got a dna profile with nobody's name on it but she actually used the technique using familial dna searches to focus where she was doing her swabbing and got successful wow and it kind of made me think, oh, why didn't I think of that on Minsty? <laughs> yeah. Actually, why didn't I think of that on Minsty? But, you know, and then I told myself, well, the answer is because I was trying to do it without the DNA. That was my whole... Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, so it can be done. It's just it's, it's fascinating. Even kind of those of us that are involved in it, it's fascinating how other people see things slightly differently and succeed in different ways, you know. Yeah, it's a fresh pair of eyes, isn't it? Like you say, <laughs> um, another DCI could have come in and sent it off in a different... A completely different tangent yeah and maybe yeah. still got the same result but you just it's a fresh pair of eyes isn't it it's a different outlook yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and that's that's what my job was to do mm. just go up there and do that and so you were ridiculously I, successful i mean <laughs> it took well you, yeah it was ridiculous is probably the word you know it's, very it's, successful <laughs> yeah there's not yeah i think either levi or delroy would have been quite good for anybody as this sort of crowded case and i was very greedy mm. to have both of them but Absolutely. Yeah, what a way! What a way to go out though for you just before your yeah, retirement, it was, wasn't it? Lovely. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. If anyone hasn't yeah. read that, it's called the Night Stalker by Connie oh, Sutton. It's a really good read. It is. It's terrifying. It, it is terrifying. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's creepy. I mean, it's actually. I think it's a more interesting and more terrifying story than Belfield, and that's saying something. I agree. I agree. But when we were, when I was writing a book, and when we were talking about doing the drama series. We kind of, we knew that we couldn't start with the Night Stalker because nobody had heard of it and nobody died. Yeah. Sort of thing. Nobody, nobody died immediately. I mean, you know, I still yeah. say. I agree. Uh, he, probably, he probably killed people, but, you know, just mm. it took a time for them to die. But um, so we had to do it the other way around because everybody had heard of Levi Belford, everybody had heard of Millie Dowler. He's always associated with Millie Dowler. Of course, that wasn't my case. But mm-hmm. We were sort of instrumental in him being 
uh, suspected of it and eventually committed, uh, convicted for it. But, but yeah, we had to do them that way around. But I, it's the same with the dramas. I think the second drama um, is, is a much better piece of work. I'm much more proud of that. Um, because I think it looks at all these issues. Why, why, why were we all so slow to react to these old ladies being attacked? Mm, I know, I yeah. know. If they'd have been aged between 18 and 35 rather than 68 and 94, they'd have been held to pay. It would have been on the front of every paper with somebody doing that number of offences. And then you've got the, the, the idea about all these, these old people who were you know, reluctant to talk about intimate things that had happened so we still don't really know how many people he assaulted or raped because i'm sure you know they were so reluctant to tell us about it because they're from that generation it doesn't talk yeah. about them so, you know. no. um and and you know there were some bits in the drama when you know when, when martin as me is having the conversation with the family liaison officer and they see the old ladies from their shopping trolleys and things like that and, you know that happened and the thing about the old lady grabbing my hand saying oh. he's interfered with me you know that happened oh and it was, yeah. I think the whole the whole thing was had much, much more complexity to it than the Belfield story because actually we don't really know why he did it. We can guess why he did it, but basically all we know is we've got a, a completely evil, nasty man who treats women like dirt, and who actually, even if he doesn't know the women, still does that if they brush him off. And that's probably what it's about. Whereas the thing with Delroy was a lot more complex and a lot more a lot more sort of things about how how we treat the old people in our society and i probably just think that because i'm you know one of them now i suppose but it's um you know no. it is this, and it came and it came a good a, you know a time after covid when again we we had those those sort of thoughts were were in people's minds are we actually getting good at looking after our old people mm. so i think it was a, a much yeah a much um, a much there was much greater depth to the story about Night Stalker than there was about Levi. Yeah, I think 100%. so as well. When you look at Levi, he doesn't exactly have layers to him. He is what he says on the can. He looks like a thug. He is a thug. Top to bottom, he's a thug. But yeah. Delroy, he had a whole other normal life going on where he wasn't a thug and yeah. a bully. He looked after his disabled wife, didn't he? He's, he got on well yeah. with his neighbours. As far as I know, he didn't do anything obviously criminal like mm. Levi mm-hmm. Belfield mm-hmm. you know he was very familiar with the law wasn't he by the time you caught him yeah. for the murders um it, no it's 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 that's the, the the big contrast was when mm. like when we spoke to neighbors and people who knew Levi Belfield they all kind of said oh yeah all right yeah well we always knew he was a wrong and it was just a matter of time really before you found out whereas wow. when he speaks to people who knew Delroy it was no you, you Literally, you've got the wrong man. You must have the wrong man. It cannot be him. He looks after his wife. She's virtually tetraplegic now. Um, he used to go out knocking on doors with her for the Jehovah's Witnesses. He runs the cricket team. He runs the darts team at the pub. And he, he DJs and, and um, does the barbecuing when we have street parties. And he's just a lovely, lovely guy. And they said that. And you, you know the story about him having this weird conversation with me in the police station about cricket when mm-hmm. I first met um, I didn't realise until afterwards when I sort of looked back on it that what I was getting there was that I was getting the Delroy that these associates at the cricket club and the pub and the neighbours get, the ordinary straight-up bloke who'd be quite happy to sit and have a pint with. So he yeah. was really clever and really good at completely changing to his dark side when he when he went out doing the things he did, but hid it so successfully from everybody else. 
I was going to ask that. So does it surprise you, like, when finally meeting, like, the suspect or the perpetrator, does it surprise you, like, sometimes because you're looking for a certain someone and when they come over, like, Leroy did, sorry, did that surprise you when he was charming and everything? Uh, Yeah, I I guess it did. I guess it surprised me at the time. As I say, looking back on it, I can see where it all fits in, how it fits Mm -hmm. together um, but again, it was a great contrast with, with, with Levi because, you know, Delroy just bowed his head, shook hands, hello, sir. And as they started talking about cricket, bizarrely. Uh, and, and Levi, I was interested in, hello, Levi, this is Mr Sutton, he's the boss. And he said, fuck off, prick. Mm-hmm. And that was just how things went, you know. And, and Jesus, we yeah. Never, he was never going to, um, you know, you're never going to, Get that get that sort of relationship back on me for kill, no, you know. But, no. but I didn't need to with him, you know. It's not. It's much more important that the two um, people that were primarily doing the interviews of him, Kerry Cunningham and, and Dave Leach, that they managed to form some sort of rapport of sorts with him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny with him actually because he's until this time he'd always managed to win. He'd always managed to talk his way out, charm his way out beat the system if you like and i wonder whether and there's absolutely no he's absolutely wrong in this there's no reason why you should think it but he may well have thought there's no point in me trying to get pally with the bloke who's the boss because that ain't gonna work but i might be able to do it like i've done before with the dcs Uh, i don't know It, it, it might be that but but yeah he he you know he was he was just he just thought he could charm anybody into anything and let's face it he did you know it's quite you know the number of statements that we took that started i had a short relationship with levi belfort and you sort of look at the person who's given the statement this woman and say how why why did this happen yeah you know (laughs) but he but yeah he was he was you know he was charming and he was funny and he was you know attractive i suppose in some ways and and then you know, typically you'd get to about the third date with him. You'd say, "Give us your phone." You'd have to give him your phone, and he'd give you another phone and say, "That's your phone now." Well, yeah, but I want that one back. It's called my number. You don't need those numbers. There's no, my numbers in that phone. That's the only. That's the only number you need now. No, mm. I don't like it. You know, no. well, they weren't allowed to have money. They weren't allowed to. They only had cash that he gave them. They weren't allowed to have bank accounts or anything like that. And I mean, just the tales of how he treated. You know, partners, not just girlfriends, not yeah. just sort of terrible things, but people he lived with, people who bore his children, the way he treated them is just... And, and that's the other thing, really, I, I guess, that I've come to realise more recently, and, and particularly in the wake of all this business about should he be able to get married and all this sort of stuff, is, is when we were doing it, and you think you're getting justice for the families of the victims, and, and you are, of course, to a degree, but actually the most important factor or most important result of us putting both Levi Belfield and Delroy Grant away is the number of women that we've stopped from becoming their victims in future. Yeah. And that's actually, uh, you know, in some ways is far more important than seeking justice for those that were victims. Yeah. And and I don't say that flippantly, but yeah, there's not much you can do. You know, all you can do is your best for them, for those that remain, and they, they know, yes, he's in prison forever, and, and that's their just... But there are dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds 
of women that those two men, if they'd been left, if they were still out on the street staying, the intervening however long it's been. I mean, it's been 19 years soon since Levi was remanded. He's been mm. inside for 19 years. We so think of how many people he could have abused in that time. Yeah. We and were... actually, that's why we should all pat ourselves on the back, not because we actually convicted them, it's because we protected all those people. Yeah, I think you put that in your book, Colin. You was like, you've made London yeah. safer, especially for women. But he didn't. He he beat up men as well, didn't he? Mm-hmm. He hit his yeah. friend over the head with a hammer and put yeah. him in hospital. And yeah, it's like everybody. Yeah. I think he was just a bully, wasn't he? Yeah, we watched a documentary about Bobby, his daughter. She released yeah. a documentary, and what's the mum's name? Sorry, Becky. Becky. She even then, I said to Carol, the trauma in her, she's still shaking. Yeah. And that was yeah. something like how many years later? Ten years later? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. She's still shaking. Yeah. Like, was that my, my dad, the serial killer? That's it. Yeah, that that's yeah it. I think. I mean, that must be that's quite ten old. or twelve years old now. Yeah. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah. Yeah. It's a totally funny story about that, actually. That I think, before I knew she existed, I thought I saw Bobby. Or well, I think it must have been her, because she does look a bit like him. I said that to you, didn't I? She does look a bit like him. And I was on a train... Um, I forget where I was going, but I was on a train somewhere in South London, Epsom, somewhere like that. I'm on a train, and there's this girl who at the time would have been about 14 or 15 sitting opposite me, wearing a Chelsea shirt. I remember that. And I thought, God, she looks just like Levi Belfield. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, well. Oh, nobody will believe me. And I'll get my phone, and I'll try to manoeuvre my phone to take a picture. I think, now if you get caught taking a picture of a 14 year old on the train, you're Mm. Yeah, she so, does. Then I saw the program, and that's who it was. That's who I. That's wow. Who I see on yeah. 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 Poor Bobby. She yeah. was a. It's a good. It's a good documentary, actually. Um, she was saying that her and her friends used to. I think she was probably about ten years old or so. I think when Emily mm. and Millie and uh, Marsha were attacked and killed, and she said that all her and all her friends were always told, "Make sure you tell everyone where you're going. Make sure you come mm-hmm. home before dark." Yeah. 
not realizing yeah. it was her dad her it's own her dad, dad yeah. who was the one yeah. who was killing the girls it was yeah how do you yeah. get your head around that i mean they seem like lovely really lovely girls all credit to mm-hmm. their mum, obviously yeah. yeah um but yeah i don't know how you uh even start to cope with that no as a young person no no it's very difficult isn't it it's mm. very difficult. there's a lot of them a lot of people and some of them are adults now aren't they but Mm. You know, whatever figure you believe, but there's at least seven, there might be nine, there might even be 11, you know, people yeah. who've got to live with that. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's... Bobby it's said... Um, some, some of them are coaching in different ways by changing names and moving away. And, yeah. you know, if you've got young kids, when he's when he was arrested, you can go through, you can go through the rest of their life not telling them, can't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Isn't, isn't, that the, isn't that the best thing? To, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know how to deal with it, but I think that in some ways, if you could isolate them from it, then I think that would be the best the best thing, really. But, yeah. One of them was um, even named after him, wasn't she? And she changed her name in the end because of it. Mm, yeah, mm. I think Bobby's little sister was called Levi. Levi, yeah. Oh, poor thing. So she, yeah. had, she got bullied terrible, and <laughs> Bobby said, we, we had to change her name in the end. <laughs> You just don't know, do you? you? Just don't know how you'd how would you ever cope with that? Thankfully, it's not something many people have to think about. But no. you know, that's what you just, said to me, wasn't it? You yeah. said that you never see the other side. You see the victim side. You see this, but you never see like the family side mm. of the perpetrator. Mm. You, you never see that, and that was really good insight, wasn't I it? I loved that documentary. It was so. It was such a human. Mm. It really humanised the whole yeah. thing. Mm. It, was, it was fantastic to see. I think the family, they, they haven't been able to move out of the area. They still live in the same house when Levi used to come and vandalise it all the time. And um, I think, like, they still, they uh, like, they um, the camera crew followed them to do their big shop in Tesco's mm. and she had to come out, Becky, yeah. because these family members were in there. And I can yeah. imagine she probably still gets quite a lot of stick. Yeah. Or she would do if yeah. she bumped into them. She, she was worried, she was frightened. She didn't want to uh, confront them at all, especially with the camera crew, she said. It would cause a lot of trouble, so... You just don't think about these things. The people that have to carry on living yeah. in the in the same estate on the same neighbourhoods yeah. when everybody knows it must yeah. be. You know what I found out only last only last week, last Thursday actually. I was down playing golf somewhere. I don't normally play golf, but a club I used to be a member of years ago in Hertfordshire, and there was some society people there. You know, golf on their visitors, and one of them, as soon as I got out of my car, she came and said, "Hello, governor." And I said, oh, oh, hello. I don't, it's, no, you don't know me, but I know who you are speaking. Oh, hello. Yeah. It turns out this bloke was a, was a PC at the time of the Met. He lived in Little Bentley, he lived in the same road as lived by Belfield. Wow. Wow. And he was the same age. And when it was announced on television, a 38 year old man <laughs> from Little Bentley has been arrested for murder, and he, he said his sergeant phoned him up to make sure he was still out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> which don't. Quite, which was quite funny, really. But mm. there you go. Um, yeah. Uh, it is, you know, like, like so much of what we we had to deal with, and I had to deal with this, is kind of just such extraordinary circumstances that most people, you know, thankfully don't get anywhere near in their lives, and it makes you uh, it's just so sort of humble and so respectful of people that somehow cope with it, and everyone mm-hmm. copes in a slightly different way. But the other thing is, I think that's the reason why true crime, you know, why we're sitting doing this, why true crime is such a huge thing at the moment, because that's what it is. It, it's it's taking people outside their normal life in 
and giving them a view of things that they can understand and they can recognize but they thankfully are never part of and i think that's 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 what it's about but i'm very you know what i'm really proud about the way we do the real manhunter is that you know every every episode is named after the victim and what we try to do is to tell it from the story of the victim's family the victim and the, and the police officers investigating it not from the point of view of the perpetrator and also everybody that we get has either been a police officer involved or a scientist or a family member or a witness you know we don't have the, the talking heads when i started doing documentaries for other companies i'd you know, I'd go and do six programs in a day, sitting on a chair and sort of refreshing my mind on my iPad in between in between questions because they were things you know, nobody could learn off my heart, and, yeah. and I'm not even bad at that. But um, and it was all just like a sausage machine. And I, I think we've moved the dial a bit with the real manhunter. We do it from a certain point of view, and the way that I always thought was the best way to do it. And it's having some effects in the industry sort of thing, you know, so I'm quite proud that we've done that. And I should give the plug while I'm there, because I'm not sure when it is, because we're in September now, and they told me it'd be September, but it might be October now, but Sky Crime will have the third series. Hey. Um, either later this month or next month, it should be starting. They've, they've had at least half of them delivered to them now, and they've finished their mates. So. Oh, that'll be good. Yeah. And it starts off, I think, with a... Oh, I shouldn't say that because sometimes they fiddle about the order, but I think it's going to start off with a down and a half special on um, Sandit. If they keep the order as, as we think they will, the first episode will be a 90-minute special on Danielle Jones. Mm. And that's quite amazing because I talked to her mother on it and, and she's she's just such a brave lady and uh, it's a shocking, terrible case, but we've we've had you know, got really good access with the family and the officers from Essex Police and Again, I think it's a story people know about the story, but I'm not sure they know all the detail of it. We'll try and send um, you yeah. over our um, Patreon episode of it, Colin. We've we've dived into it because we're local to this case, aren't we? So mm. it's quite on our visuals, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think um, it was in the same year as Millie, wasn't it? 2002. Yeah. Because I remember when yeah. Millie's remains were found, I think Danielle's mum was like, is this going to be Danielle's remains? But it turned yeah. out to be Minnie's. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, it wasn't all that long after she went missing. They they, they knew that it was her uncle, you know, mm. and they knew what had happened to her, really. But he still won't and admit what it, he's done with her, will matter, he? No, it just matter. And do you know that, I mean, we, it go, we go into this in the programme, but it's a bit of a spoiler, but I didn't realise until I spoke to Linda, to Danielle's mum, that he's now passed his recommendation for parole. So every year, he can make an application for parole. And the way it kind of works is that the parole board ring her up and say, oh, he's coming up for his, um, he's coming up for his application in the next couple of weeks. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know where within a month or so as to how it's gone. And she then spends six weeks on pins until the phone rings and they say, no, he's failed. And you'll be in for, you know, same again next year. Jeez. And you kind of think, well, why do we treat people, you know, victims' families. This woman has had her 14-year-old daughter taken from her mm -hmm. and murdered. Mm -hmm. And yet she's having to spend six weeks of every year sitting there on pins, wondering about what's going to happen, whether the man who murdered her daughter and didn't tell her where the body is, is going to be released. And, you know, the police have got family liaison work. The Child Crown Prosecution Service eventually 
realise that they need to do that sort of work. Why doesn't the parole board? Why yeah. doesn't the parole board understand that these people ought to be treated in an appropriate way and given the support that they need and, and not left on the end of a phone for six weeks? Oh, it's awful. crazy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Awful. They're just playing into his hands. That's all he wants is control over that family. He, yeah. It's his last little yeah, bit of is. control and he's not giving and, it up. And, and, that's, and that's my big thing about Belfield and should he be allowed to marry and all the other stuff. You know, he should not be allowed to exercise control over people from behind bars. No, he should He's been put there because he can't be trusted to, to be close to women. Yeah. So why do we let him carry on doing yeah. that from through the phone or the internet or whatever I, I don't know how they do it um you know yeah just daft isn't it yeah i know it is it's, it's a bit of a kick in the teeth really yeah. isn't it for all involved yeah. i think um so yeah colin when i was reading your book at the weekend i know obviously you've got a decent sense of humor <laughs> that, that comes across all the time um we was wondering if you had any uh, funny anecdotes from your career that you wanted to share with us I'll give you a, just a really quick example. <laughs> this could be an inside joke. I don't know if you're going to want me to cut this out. <laughs> Jilf, do you remember that in your book? Jill? Jilf. About the lady Jill. judge. judge. Oh, right. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I just that busted me up and I had to tell Lauren that joke because I thought it was really funny. <laughs> but... Well, yeah, no, I can tell you. I mean, it was, this was, this was, um, it was a barrister, a, a junior barrister he was then, who was the second barrister on on. on one of my cases, one of my murder cases, my earlier murder cases, and he was standing smoking outside the Old Bailey on the first or second day of the Belfield trial. And uh, he was a lovely chap, and I said hello to him. And he said, oh, hello, Mr. Sutton. And, of course, we had um, a wonderful lady called um, Mrs. Justice Rafferty, and Rafferty, Dayman Rafferty, who was, was our trial judge. And she was not only scrupulously fair, but she was very supportive, and, and yeah, she was very, very lovely. And she... She was sitting as our trial judge. And so this barrister said to me, how are you getting on with, with Mrs. Rafferty? And I still, she seems perfectly fine and fair and, you know, and uh, it's all going very well. And so he said, do you know there were certain members of the criminal bar who call her the Jilf? And he then starts <laughs> to spell out J-I-L-F, he says. <laughs> I said, yeah, no, I hadn't. He said, that stands for... I said, I know you're <laughs> You don't have to spell it out to me. <laughs> and I said, I said, there can't be many members of the criminal bench that you can say that about. And he said, that, Mr. Sutton, depends entirely on your point of view. Because he was gay. And I'd forgotten he was gay. So, yeah, the point I was making was very, well, then, very few women on the bench. Yeah. Course, yeah, I love that. that. So that was, that, was, that was funny. I mean, yeah, there's... there's I put some bits and bobs in the book. Um, there's there's loads. I mean, when I do these just these sort of shows, like the one I did at Beckles the other night, and I've got another, I've got about 12 of those booked now like, over the next 12 months. That's and brilliant. All over the place. Yeah, because I quite enjoy doing them. People seem to enjoy themselves. So so the first half of that, really, I do, I talk about, I talk about how I joined and stuff that happened to me in my career and some funny things. But also try with a bit of a point and talk about, you know, we talk, we, we think about how has the police changed since 1980 to now. And all these people say, oh, it's still misogynistic, it's still racist, it's still terrible. Yeah, it's got some work to do. I, I'm sure you'll never say you've got there. But actually, if you compare it back to the police that I joined in 1980, it's moved a hell of a long way. And so I kind of use some sort of amusing-ish stories to kind of illustrate that as well in the first half. Then we have a break, they'll go to the bar and then we come back and I talk about 
um, Levi and, and Delroy and the, the way that was done. So, yeah, I think it, you know, I was just being surprised. I, I, I just got into doing that by accident. Somebody just asked me if I'd do it at my golf club because the clubhouse would all be rebuilt. They said, we want to get something to back people in and people will come and listen to us. Will they? Um, I did it and it worked. So I started doing it. Yeah, there's some. There's a good friend of mine, David Swindle, who's doing this making of the murderer tour. And you look at the list of where he's going, and I think I I just couldn't do that. I just couldn't cope with that. You know, being in Felixstowe one night and Pirelli the next night and Blackpool the night after, and then Christchurch. You know, mm, no, yeah. I'm not going to be. You know, I don't want to spend. Um, a fair play to him. You know, he obviously enjoys it and he's getting good reviews and great crowds there. And, and good luck to him. He deserves it. He's a he's a good guy. He's an engaging speaker and he's got a good story to tell, you know. So I don't, but I don't want to do that many. One or two a month would be fine for me, thanks. Thoroughly enjoyed the Beckles show. I said every time I come to see you, it's always something different. There's never the same story being told. Oh, uh, right. Well, I think, yeah, well, don't come to any of the ones I'm doing next year then because it probably will be. <laughs> oh, no. I'll give you a wave. I was waving, oh, yeah, I'm here. It's me. <laughs> yeah, I've got one of my, uh, one of the first shows. The first one I did in the theatre was up in York at the Theatre Royal. And the reason I did that was because there's somebody that I know who, who works in theatre and she was producing what they call a takeover week. So she has to find sort of seven acts. And she said, do you fancy coming and give me a go here? And I said, well, I've done it at the golf club, but that's not the same. So, yeah, <laughs> I've got this beautiful old theatre in the middle of York and, and um, had a good crowd. It went really well. But one of my probationer constables from when I was a uniform inspector in the late 80s, early 90s, has now retired. And as, a, as an aside, she was part, she was a firearms instructor and she was actually teaching my son to this firearms course at one point. So it's kind of nice full circle, you know. She was my probationer on my team and now she's teaching my son. But she's retired up to the northeast and she, uh, I, I go out this thing and she's sitting there in the front row. So, um, Wow. I, I knew she. I knew she was coming. She was, was she there to heckle you, Colin? <laughs> no, she was fine. She was good. So I, I actually changed to one of the slides because I had a picture of us at work and she was in it. So I put that in the show. So I looked back. She was there. Oh, you know, <laughs> wicked. Um, and she just said, "Oh yeah," because I'm going to do one of the shows. I think I'm booked up to is in Hexham, which is up in Northumberland or Northeast somewhere, so close to. So I'll come along and see her. So well, I shouldn't bother if I you. The show's not changed. She's nice. <laughs> I still come. So it's nice. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so if anyone, if any of our listeners are um, wondering, like, just in case what we're talking about, if they go to, uh, you can follow you on Instagram, Facebook, things like that, and you'll have the link, won't you, to your shows that are coming yeah. up? Yeah, yeah. for some reason, I did have an Instagram account that was called Colin Sutton, but I lost the password and they won't give it back to me, so I never used to use it. So oh. it's it's Colin Sutton, but the two O's are zeros. Uh, on I did figure. I did figure. Why yeah. is that happening? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's not something I stole it. It's just I, <laughs> I, I copped it up. Um, yeah, so it's on there, and there's Colin Sutton, some sort of bits sort of Ponzi titles, Colin Sutton, writer and broadcaster on Facebook to separate it from my ordinary Facebook, I suppose. Um, it's all on there, and mm -hmm. yeah, I've, I've, as, as I'm getting new dates, I'm adding them on. But so I think there's about 11 or 12 now. Nice. It's going right through to next September. Um, I start doing those in. November in Wimborne in Dorset, which is a lovely town that I've spent many times in because I've found it nearby. And um, yeah, doing a few down the southwest. I think I've managed to work one out today for the West Midlands in Dudley as Ooh. well, the date that people are asking. But essentially, people have been asking on both Facebook and um, 
Instagram saying, oh, please come to so-and-so, please come to so-and-so. That's lovely. Uh, and so I've been trying to, you know, I come on stuff, but somebody said, oh, try the City Hall in Newcastle. Right, so I emailed them. And they came back and said, it's the O2 City Hall. We, we, we're ready to take um, over 2,000. Are you sure this is appropriate? I said, oh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm going to <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, but we'll hire it to you for about 30 grand. It's like, no, it's okay. No, Don't worry. Yeah. You're, you're, you're all right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it sounds really fun. Yeah. It does. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I just don't want to keep knock myself out. You know, I've got to spend time playing golf and course. going to dog shows and all the other things that I like doing, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you, Colin. Should we leave it there? Yeah, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you, Colin. We really oh, appreciate it. It's always nice it. to talk to you. We'll go and have a beer going, next time we're in to each other's you're company. You're going to Glasgow this weekend, are you? Uh, no, no. no. We wish. You're, you're going, aren't you, to CrimeCon Glasgow? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. It'd be fun. Yeah, it was good last year. So it's good fun. Yeah. Will yeah. we see you in June yeah. next year? I think it's good. Isn't it going to have September again next year? I oh, think. is it? I Crime, think so, yeah. I think CrimeCon's going to be September next year in London, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, we'll see you then, yeah. then. But I'll, I'll be there, definitely. <laughs> All right. Okay. Or, if not, in this in Morrison's to put in Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Oh, lovely.